Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. Today's episode is an insightful discussion on the impact of crime reporting on society, as Marion Colbrand shares her research on the changes in crime reporting over the past 40 years, including the impact of the Leveson report and the fake news era. The panel also explores how working practices and lack of diversity in newsrooms have led to representational harm and the othering of communities, and how non-profits are working to reverse this. Originally recorded at Bradford Literature Festival 2022, this panel discussion looks at how crime reporting in the UK in particular, working practices and lack of diversity in newsrooms and in management, have led to representational harm and the othering of black and other communities, and how non-profits are working to reverse this. It was something that everybody knew about, all my interviewees talked about, although some of them said, oh, no, you know, we, we, we never indulged in this. They all said that, you know, basically, when they started out, their editors would say, okay, if you've got to pay for information, here is this pot of money, you can have this. And also they said it was very well known, again, particularly with murder-owned um, newspapers, that there were these relationships between officers in the Met who were finding out information, who were selling it on to newspapers. So that was a whole sort of shift of, or sort of flow of information. The other thing that was going on that was extremely dodgy was that, and again, I didn't know this, was that quite often police officers, particularly senior police officers, would use the press to discredit colleagues. So, for example, it was um, an editor, an associate editor at the Mail told me all about how um, a senior officer who had been leading the SERM inquiries and his colleagues felt he hadn't done a good enough job. So they basically leaked a story about sexual scandal to the press mm -hmm. and that led to his resignation. So there were all these sort of highly unorthodox relationships mm -hmm. going on. So certainly the Leveson inquiry and the Filken inquiry did unearth this, but on the other hand, it didn't quite get to the complexities of the relationship and what would happen if the relationship was completely closed down. Thank you, Marion. One of the things that you talk about in mm. your book, and, and one of the things it has in common with Moses's book, actually, is that it discusses um, what constitutes a crime um, and what constitutes a social harm and how, the, how those crimes are reported, whether they're reported and by whom. Towards the end of the book, you talk in quite a bit of detail about the growth of non-profit yeah. newsrooms. Uh, one of those that you focus on is the Bristol Cable, which you'll be familiar with, uh, Moses. I wondered if you could just briefly tell us about how crime reporting by non-profits differs from crime reporting in mainstream news media. Yeah. So, very briefly, in traditional crime journalism, um, journalists depend on the police to tell them what crimes are. And that leads to the police defining what a crime is. So it's basically a violation of the criminal law. And that means the police are kind of filtering what they think is a crime, then journalists filter what they think is a crime, 
and they think about what will sell to the public, so they focus on sensationalist, violent crime. So it's a very narrow view of what crime is. And what the non-profits are trying to do is to move away from that model of if it bleeds, it leads. And they're also trying to move away from that model of crime, particularly negative portrayals of people of colour, of people of other marginalised communities, and to look more broadly at crimes of social harm and crimes, the causes and the effects of social harm. So, for example, um, media criminologists have talked about this for ages, the whole idea of crimes of social harm. And they're saying, well, they're things that affect people more generally, like exploitation of workers' rights, homelessness, poverty, crimes of pollution, abuse of human rights, denial of human rights. But they also want to go beyond that to look at causes and effects. And again, their criticism of traditional journalism is basically if um, there's a reporting of a spate of knife crimes, in traditional crime journalism, nobody goes and talks to those communities. Nobody says, what's the effect on the families? Nobody says, well, what are the causes of this? What are the effects? What can be done? It's very much a narrative of who's to blame. And they want to move away from that to a, what can we do? How can we understand what's going on? How can we make the public understand what's going on? Let's move this from a narrative of blame to a narrative of what can we do? Mm. So it's about looking at those broader social harms. Thank you. Before we um, go on to have a chat with um, Bill, um, you've already talked a little bit about uh, the impacts of social media and the relationship that um, the ways in which uh, the police use social media to communicate with citizens. I wondered whether you could give us your views on how sort of social media and the ubiquity of cameras and videos in our pockets, video cameras in our pockets, has it, it's led to citizens being able to broadcast their own news. Um, and what impact do you think that's had on, on uh, the police service? That's a huge and really important question, mm. and thank you for answering that, for asking me that rather. So I think the murder of George Floyd was really, really important because it brought to the attention of most people the problems with crime reporting. Because basically, up until that point, especially in America, a lot of African Americans have been using Twitter to put up their own journalism, particularly at, um, events of police brutality, because they did not trust the mainstream media to report it correctly. And what the murder of George Floyd showed was that people could now put up in real time evidence of police brutality without the police being able to get in there and provide an inaccurate narrative. But there are huge problems with social media. For example, there's a really good book out there by um, Alyssa Richardson, a media scholar, which talks about the problems of Twitter and how actually for um, African Americans reporting this sort of thing, their mobile phones can actually be used by the police to track them. The other problem that isn't sort of generally reported is that the police actually have really increased powers of surveillance through body-worn cameras and they can turn them off. Also, even when people are able to bring cases against the police of brutality, it often takes a long, long time 
for these cases to be brought to court and often they're settled out of court through non-disclosure um, agreements. So again, it's a situation where all the aces are in the police power. Mm. But we were talking in the green room um, before about particularly the uses of WhatsApp by mm. the police. And don't know if anybody, if you've seen the documentary about, um, called Two Daughters, yeah. about the murders of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman. And the thing that really appalled me in that video was, A, not only did two police officers think that it was okay to take pictures of themselves with, a, with the bodies of two murdered women, but they then sent it out to 40 officers. And that was just shocking. That was the first time I'd heard that figure. And it's just like, there are 40 officers out there who either think it's okay or more likely are too scared to say, this is not okay. They're too scared to stand up and say anything about it. So I think in terms of police culture, that raises the question of, especially with a new commissioner coming, hopefully coming to power in the Met, it's basically, it's about a culture where people should feel able to stand up and say, this is wrong, because clearly it isn't in the Met at the moment. And a lot of businesses since George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, have really taken a long, hard look at themselves and the way they're tackling diversity or not tackling diversity. And the Met scene needs to take a good, hard look at itself and to work out what it's going to do to basically allow people to say, this is wrong behavior. I, I just do not approve of this because it's a culture in which people are scared to stand up and talk against this. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Marianne. It seems quite deep-rooted as well, doesn't it? Because there's, I think there was um, a similar group, a uh, WhatsApp group based in Charing Cross Station, yeah. which was sort of circulating homophobic, racist, misogynist um, messages amongst a large group of police officers. Thank you, Marianne. We'll get back to you. Uh, Bill, though, let's uh, have a chat with you. I suppose one of the few things that you didn't have to be worried about um, when you became the first black male police officer in South Yorkshire was how you were going to be portrayed on social media. Um, <laughs> but you had a bunch of other things to, to be concerned about. Um, and I thought it might be quite interesting for the audience first to go right back to when you first started thinking about whether to be a police officer. And it wasn't entirely straightforward. Um, there's a part in the documentary where you talk about telling a careers teacher that you wanted to be either a doctor, an engineer, or a policeman. How was that received? Well, that's one of the biggest shocks I've had from growing up. <clears throat> Can you imagine yourself, 13, 14, and you had careers day? That's what we had in school. And um, I was, at that time, in my school, I was in what they call the top team. They had the top 12 in, the, in each year, and I was one of them. So my aspirations was, as I said, I had an idea what I wanted to do, and those are my three choices. But um, having gone into this room with this um, woman and expressed my own desire about my own career, and got out of that room so deflated, and when I say deflated, I'm not kidding you, and saying about the impact, I thought I was clever enough I thought that this person was listening to what I was saying, 
And it showed by her response that she wasn't listening at all. And the judgments was made as soon as I walked in that door. And um, that interrupted one day of my life completely. Because it takes me half an hour to walk home normally. And I was so upset by it. I walked the longest way home I ever could, which took me over an hour. And the reason behind that, because I wanted to try and get my head straight as to why me, why this happened. And I really didn't want to tell my father either, because he was expecting me to tell him what happened as well. And as luck would happen, by the time I'd got home an hour later, it was actually in the house that I was doing something else. He didn't have time to talk with me, luckily. But I was really, really annoyed. And I can't even recall ever being as annoyed in my life since. And from what I understand, Bill, oh. the, the careers officer said to you that um, you could be... Yeah. Well, actually, uh, what, what, what... Was it a, a woman, sorry? Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. what, what she said was um, that black people flatter to deceive. Um, and that's a phrase that, I mean, I've heard loads of times, but I've mm. never really understood what it means. Yeah. I looked it up. Mm. And it means that um, it's, about, it's to appear promising, but to ultimately disappoint. Yeah. So there was that assumption that that was being a doctor, an engineer, or a police mm. officer wasn't a possibility. Yeah. What, can you remember what she said you could be? She said, you should look at being a labourer. And if I'm perfectly honest, I really didn't know what a labourer was. And that was part of the issue I had. Had she said something else I was aware of, it'd make a bit of sense, but I had no idea what a labourer was. Mm -hmm. My father worked all his life, and um, we've never had discussion about labourers. Mm. But um, as you imagine when you're 13 and you've got all these high hopes, and you look at your expectations, and for somebody in matters of minutes really to destroy it all in one go, mm. that really, really annoyed me. And as I said, I can see why people react when they have messages like that being thrown at them all their lives in different compartments, but it's being sent, the message being sent the same. I try and look at my children and I say to them, when you make a decision, make it because it's one you want to make, not because somebody else wants you to make it, the ones you want to make. Mm. And I'll go as far as to tell them, if I tell you to do something and you don't want to, Tell me why. Mm -hmm. right, so we have that sort of understanding, and that seems to work pretty well. In the, in the event, though, you did, uh, mm. despite mm. the poor advice that you'd got, yeah. you did join the police yeah. force, didn't you, in 1981? Uh -huh. And it was, it was at the time where there was like a series of uprisings yeah. right across England. Uh, the, the in Leeds, rebelled. for example. Yeah, the, yeah. the community rebelled. So yeah. How old were you so, when you came from St. Kitts? Seven. Seven. Mm -hmm. um, so, y despite being essentially told that mm. being a police officer wasn't open to you, you still joined the police yeah. force. So, what had been your experience of the police before you, you joined? Well, I had really no experience with the police. I had no contact as such. Mm. The only thing I've ever had with the police, I was walking home one evening after work, and the riots had actually started in the area I was living, Chapel Town. And I was totally unaware. And bearing in mind, once you've been walking for over an hour, you get a little tired. 
and most of it was uphill. And um, I can see when I'm near the park, one police van and nobody else. And as I got closer, a policeman appeared in uniform and um, I just challenged us, what, what we're doing, where am I going? That type of thing. And the next minute, he opened the door and threw me in. Right. Now, um, the only thing I said of any note, when he asked me, where do I live? I said, up there. And then I followed him up and said, oh, if you want, you can take me up there if you want. And um, I don't think he enjoyed my little quip. Mm -hmm. So I can put it down to. But I was annoyed. Yeah. But not as annoyed as a careers woman either. Yeah. However, that sort of led to me thinking a lot clearer about the area I live in, the people I associate with in particular, because I grew up from being a young kid, and the people I knew from being like a seven-year-old to that age, we've always been friendly to one another, and we know a little bit more about the own they were living. And we're just young men who worked, got home, did the business, had a bit of fun, and went home, causing no problem whatsoever. So to have this interaction with the police, I can now start to see a little bit of what some other people that we know talk about. Mm. Because it's only until you put in that spotlight it makes sense. What made you think you could change things from the inside, Bill? The group of five of us talked about this and my little incident as well. And the idea was, how can we make this any better? Because we've had, um, let's say, people from other areas actually come into the area that we live and cause destruction, a lot of aggravation, and yet, Nobody's done anything about it. Nobody wants to do anything about it. So it just continues to become a problem. Now, as far as I can say from my age group, I'm looking down at those who are younger than myself, and my brother was in that category, of seeing them moaning about why aren't somebody doing something about it. And the, re the reality is, we have to look at ourselves and say, as black people, why aren't we doing something about it? It's happening to us, so why aren't we doing something? And it's no use saying, I'm going to leave to somebody else to do it, because it doesn't work. Until you say, it's about time we did something ourselves. That it makes a bit of sense. Mm -hmm. I can go back to when I was sort of like 10, 11. And that's when I first, that's the first time I sort of really understood that we had a problem in our area. And I saw a lot of teenagers who fought back against those people who wanted to cause destruction within the area lead. And they're the ones that spent time in prison as a result of. Now, you can say what's fair, what's right, what's wrong. There isn't a perfect answer to it. However, as far as I'm aware, it didn't stop or cause the problem to stop. Because it then led to the community rebelling because they weren't happy with what was happening. And that's from the establishment, the police I'm talking about. We're talking about the education and stuff, stuff like that. A lot of black young men, I'm talking about my own personal viewpoint, a lot of them that I'm aware of and I know something like, all they want to do is to have 
an opportunity. They want access to do something that they choose. They don't want to be piecemeal, you know, opportunities. And that's what's happened, and it was happening, and probably still happening. Until, not so much black people, until the community as a whole start to rebel against what's happening collectively, things aren't going to change too much. Mm. Right? So, uh, can I just mention one other point while I'm on? Uh, just, you can, I, I you can. Right. Just very aware of time. Yeah. I worked, I worked for over 10 years right, as a community officer in a mining village. Now, having worked there, and you have, I'm in control, literally, because I, I am the officer of that group, so I'm responsible for when things doesn't work. Surprisingly, I were finding out little bits about what the community is wanting and what works and what doesn't work. And one of the things I decided to try was to have a surgery, a community people surgery. So for every Saturday, every Saturday in one year, our little office will be open to anybody in the community who has an issue that they want to talk about. And we did that for 10 years. Now, moving forward, when I retired, one of the things that they actually mentioned was the surgery itself. Not because I'm brilliant, I've got a brilliant idea, but the fact was that I took the time, or there was a space available that they can come and speak to somebody in private if need to be, or formally. Mm. And that helps. And that's something you initiated yourself? Though. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I wanted to, to talk for a minute about um, the sort of stuff that was going on as you, in the early years of your police career, mm. there was a lot. So you joined in 81, mm -hmm. um, come the, you joined the South Yorkshire Police Force. Mm -hmm. Come 1984-85, we had the biggest industrial action that uh, the uh -huh. country's seen since the Second World War mm -hmm. with the miners' strike. And suddenly, I mean, you know, from everything you've said about your motivation for joining the police force. Mm -hmm. It was about supporting and helping and making a positive difference. But you're mm -hmm. suddenly in a situation as a police officer in South Yorkshire mm -hmm. where you're um, one of Thatcher's boot boys. Oh, yeah. That's how people would think of you. Yeah. How, did you how did you manage that? How did you get your head around it? Well, first I heard, I think we were called Maggie's Army yeah. at the time. But where I live and where the mining strike took place, it's a mining community. Mining community, as far as I can make out, are unique to themselves. It's, um, it doesn't matter whether you, you look, work at Swinton, Goldthorpe, Barnsley, you're still part of the mining village situation. And they are very proud of the fact. Now, um, when I moved into the area, I was the second black family within the area. And the surprising aspect of it was, I had all these, let's say, trepidation about being there and standing out a little bit and whatever. And I was concerned for my children as to whether they're going to feel comfortable and grow up safely. And um, I need to sort of tell you a little story how it happened. My first day in my area I live now, I got there, it was a winter's evening, and um, I had my uniform, pressed, boots, polished, the whole caboodle. 
and I was ready to go. And I opened my door, and the thing I didn't reckon for, I had a leak. So as I opened the door, I got absolutely drowned. Everything I had on was wet. Now, over the road from me, we had a fella who was a warden within the last war, and he continued that as his thing, just to keep himself interested in something. And he actually came over to me, absolutely sodden, and said, are they a copper kid? And I said, well, yes, policeman. And um, he says, oh, shut the door, come with me then. And that man, a total stranger, invited me to his house, where I met his wife and his daughter. And he ensured that for that evening, I would be in, in a place that's warm. Now, when I got up in the morning, he and his wife had been out to the house and absolutely tidied it up completely. There was nothing dry, sorry, nothing wet. Everything was dry, the windows were open, being aired. And oh, I was so grateful because I've never known a man to do something like that for me. So that surprise. And over the years, we became, the family and us became good friends. Mm -hmm. And that was my introduction to my area I live. Mm -hmm. But what happened to me was whether the family in question, they're very well known in the area, I don't know at the time, but suddenly a lot of people became aware of me. And so when I went to different places, I wasn't the surprise mm -hmm. as I thought I would be. It served as a bit of an introduction. I did, yes. Yeah. So, mm. thank you. Thank you, Bill. So, um, we're kind of going to move on from... Um, mm -hmm. It's a pity we didn't get to talk about the Black Police Association, but we will do. <laughs> um, but we're going to move on from um, where you and your family were in a tiny minority in a very white yeah. environment in a mining village to Moses. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to talk about his book, An Olive, um, An Olive Grove Events. Um, I've, I've read the book, um, and I know this can sound a bit odd, but one of the things I really appreciated about it is um, the, <coughs> uh, that it starts with a family tree. Mm -hmm. um, My brother drew that as well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Family. So it's, uh, that's the family tree at the beginning. I love a family tree. And I associate it most often with um, historical fiction. So um, Hilary Mantel has got a brilliant family tree right throughout the Wolf Hall trilogy. And I, I really like the fact that we've got this beautifully drawn um, family tree that's full of quite obviously black names. Mm. So you've got uh, Jamal, Jaden, Seon, Bunny. Um, and it kind of, it, it serves as a bit of an introduction to the whole book because this is very much a story which centers um, autonomous black lives and culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I listened to an interview that Colin uh, did with you on Writer's Mosaic, mm -hmm. um, where you talk about the fact that your target audience for this book is a black audience. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me why that's important to you. Uh, yeah, so there was, I watched an interview once about a uh, Tony Morrison interview she was talking about, um, her interviewer was a white woman, and she asked, the, the interviewer asked why Toni Morrison never wrote about white, 
people, or if, if they were in the book, they were in like quite minor roles. And besides the question being obviously and quite overtly racist, Toni Morrison kind of skipped that and just spoke about how in her world there weren't white protagonists as such, there weren't white characters who had predominant roles. And in mine, aside from obviously my mother, um, there was, it's the same for me. So if I'm writing a character about, or if I'm setting a book in Eastern, which is the area of Bristol I'm from, uh, that's the reality of the area. The only white people in the area, there's a line in the book that says the only white people in the area when I was growing up had dreads, drug addictions, or black children. And that was it. Every other, everyone else was either Jamaican or Somali. Because um, even within blackness, it was quite a monolith. It was literally just Jamaican and Somali. There weren't even, the other small islands weren't represented. West Africa wasn't represented. South Africa wasn't represented. It was kind of just those two communities. So when I say that I write for black people, I write for my audience, I write for myself. In the same way that um, Kate Chopin, when she wrote The Awakening, she didn't write that for working class white people. She didn't write that for black people. She wrote that for upper and higher class white people. And the reason you can tell that is because she uses French and Latin in her work indiscriminately and just switches from English to Latin to French. And the reader's entirely expected to know exactly what she's talking about. She expects the reader to read the Latin and be able to translate it, to read the French and know, oh, I know what that means. And that's a very, that's a class signifier. It tells you who her audience is. And in the same way that she's focused on her audience, I'm focused on mine. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that really impressed me about the book um, is, is the fact that it is so high. Sorry. Sorry. I'm going to carry on what I just said. Sorry. All right. Um, but that's not to say, like you said, you mentioned like the universality of it. Mm. There is, I think all great works of fiction have a very specific target audience in mind. I think all great works of fiction, the, the writer knows exactly who his audience is and writes only for them. But because human emotion is, is universal, there's always something that people can relate to mm. within very specific messages. Um, yeah, I just want to say that. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, actually. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's just me trying to sell the book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's why you, we can um, watch Shakespeare we can, yeah, and, and we can exactly. relate. Yeah. Um, so, but going back to that sense of hyper-localness, which, mm. which I am really impressed by in, in your book, mm. and kind of relates a bit to what both Marianne and Bill have spoken about, um, there's, there's almost a sense of claustrophobia um, in the book, but that's not meant as a criticism at all. In fact, I think it's a strength because mm. it, it seems to me to say you know what you are talking and writing about. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I particularly liked is the way that you, um, you've combined Jamaican patois and Somali and Arabic mm. in a way that I've not no seen before. Mm. Um, and it makes it a, a really unique reading experience. And it also tells us a lot about Eastern, which is the particular very specific area that you're writing about. Mm. Um, I wondered if you could sort of let the audience know a bit about um, Eastern, uh, who lives there, what's it feel like? Yeah, so in regard to the language of it, I think the reason you wouldn't have seen it is because it's new. Mm. Lan language is very fluid, hundreds of words are added to the dictionary every single year, and it, the newness usually comes from when different cultures mix and the relationship between different cultures. And in Eastern, in less specifically Bristol, well, Bristol has the fifth most... Uh, black people in the country in regard to city. We're, I think we're at 6%, whereas the national 
percentages of less than 4%. Um, but w again, like I said, within that blackness, it's quite like, it's, it's, quite mon it's a monolith because it's just Jamaican and Somali, they're the predominant cultures. So the language in the book is, is like reminiscent of those two cultures and their interaction and their relationship. So Jamaicans obviously have been here since, well, in any great number, since about the 50s, 60s onwards. Somalis, their migration was in the 90s when the, their civil war was happening in Somalia. And um, I was in primary school in 2000, and when was I in primary school? In the early 2000s, up to the mid 2000s. And um, that's when the Jamaican and Somali communities in Bristol were mixing. And there was like, there was animosity between them in a way that was most probably our community, the Jamaican community's fault. Um, in the same way that when large people groups move into a new area, the immediate reaction is like to turn away. The same thing happens now when with the Roma communities that move into Bristol, that probably happened about 10, 15 years ago, there was like an aversion that wasn't based on anything other than racial prejudice or cultural mm. prejudice. And that was the same thing that happened when the Somalis first came. And then now, if you go there now, it's more integrated. It's still not 100% um, for various reasons, but that's the, um, the demographic of the area. Mm. And the book is very much shaped by the relationship between the two people groups mm -hmm. and how over the years it's changed and how in other ways it's stagnant and how it hasn't changed at all. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that's, that's where the environment yeah. is. And I mean, I think a really good illustration of that is um, uh, two of my favorite characters in the book, mm. um, Hakim and Elia. Mm. Um, Hakim has reverted to Islam um, and he's Jamaican mm. and Elia is of Somali origin. Mm. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's a really nice way of humanizing that much bigger story that you've just told us about, about two communities mm. finding ways to, to uh, live and actually work together because they own a bakery mm. and make just... The way you write about foods, by the way, is just incredible. I think it's really brilliant. Yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and at the center of that relationship is uh, issues of faith, um, and, and that's a theme throughout the whole book. Yeah. Uh, the predominant theme, I'd say, is faith. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I just wondered whether you were, in writing the book, you're working through, you were at all working through your own ideas mm. and thoughts about faith and where you've landed. Yeah, um, so yeah, faith, when I, so I wrote the book mainly as like a love letter to my area and then a love letter to my little cousin. And um, the main theme that I had in my head I wanted to explore was morality, but I didn't want to explore it in like the way a journalist would. Mm. I didn't want to explore it in regard to like crime or like mm. the justice system or any earthly punishment. I wanted to explore it more in like a heavenly punishment because the people I was raised around, that's what we're more concerned with is the afterlife, whether you're Muslim or Christian, which are the two biggest faiths in, in Bristol. When, yeah, in Bristol, but I'm sure elsewhere as well in the country. But um, I want to explore what Christianity said about Islam uh, what Christianity said about morality, what Islam said about morality, and how they juxtapose, how they're in so many ways exactly the same. And then the perception of them is that they contrast. Um, and I want to explore, that in our community there's so many Jamaicans, specifically men, like myself, who have been raised Christian and then revert to Islam, which I think is very fascinating as to why that happens, what calls us, What's the draw? What's the appeal? Especially when outside of our community, 
again, in, in, in the newspapers, there's such a negative portrayal of Islam um, throughout this country, throughout the West, in the media. But then within, within our communities, it's the complete opposite. And so many of us see discipline and we see salvation and we see security and community within Islam in a way that we don't find in Christianity, which is something that I want to explore in the novel. But I try to explore it. Christianity comes out in a very negative light in the book, which was my intention but isn't my belief. I believe Christianity to be a very beautiful religion and I think the opposite can be found, what I found in Islam, I think the opposite can be found in Christianity as well. But, which actually makes it more interesting to study or to research or to explore because then the differences become a lot more nuanced and the characters and the relationships, for example, as you mentioned, Hakim and Elia's relationship with the protagonist, Seon, who was raised by a pastor, his mum's a worship leader, which is why he has a negative relationship. They're more concerned with the afterlife than him, which is why he has a negative relationship with Christianity. But, um, and then their relationship, Seon's relationship with Hakim and Elia as these very positive, loving, wholesome images and then which he then relates or um, um, gives to Islam or sees as Islam is something I want to explore. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. And where, uh, where have you landed? Myself? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm Muslim. I was, raised, I was raised Christian. But I stopped being, I didn't like to switch overnight. I was raised around more Muslims and Christians, always, because I was raised, my area is like mainly Somali, mm. as opposed to being Somali and Jamaican, it's probably more Somali now. So I was raised around a lot of Muslims, and all the Christians that I was raised around, including myself, we weren't like very serious within the church. So we, I was in a Baptist and Pentecostal churches, and my perception of what Christianity was, as opposed to what Islam was, is Islam was more disciplined, and it was more, it was more serious. Like there, I carried more of a respect for the way that Muslims practiced Islam as a way to the way, as opposed to the way Christians practiced Christianity. I think. Um, so yeah, that's. And there's other reasons as well in regard to like the community. I think my perception of Christianity was a perception of whiteness, that, um, that I've had quite a negative experience of whiteness in my life, as opposed to blackness. Where, where in, for example, Bradford, Islam would be mostly Desi. They're the people who would practice. The majority of Muslims here would be Desi, whereas in Bristol, the majority of Muslims are Somali. Therefore, the majority of Muslims are black. So if I relate Islam to blackness and Christianity to whiteness, mm -hmm. and if I have had a negative experience of whiteness, therefore my experience is, my negative experience of whiteness translates to a negative experience of Christianity. And this is a very, like you said, this is a very local and this is a very anecdotal experience of the two religions. This is by no means me saying this is what, how it is. Um, because the perception of Islam being black is incorrect. And I absolutely know it's incorrect. Um, however, because it's localized and because it's anecdotal, and because we are affected more by what we don't remember than what we do remember, that is where I feel a call to, and that's where I feel a draw to. And um, the character's journey is not similar, it's not dissimilar either. There's similarities uh, in, in our um, journey of faith, there's similarities, but there are differences, like quite distinct differences that... Um, yeah, that just shows there's more nuance to mm -hmm. the relationship between the black community and Islam and the black community and Christianity within Bristol. Fantastic. Because even if the story moved, sorry, mm. <laughs> even if the story moved, 
100 miles to the east and we're in London, in certain areas it would be completely different. If we moved to Bradford, it would be completely different because my perception of Islam would be through the Desi community. My perception of Christianity would still be through the white community, but then it would be very different. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. That's really um, helpful. Mm. Um, before we open things up to the audience, mm. um, let's sort of bring things sort of full circle, uh, Moses. And uh, one of the things that, that Marianne, Marianne talks about in her book is the distinction between what we call crime and what we call social harms. Also, obviously, in Bill's career, his job was uh, tackling what we call crime that's censored by you know, legislation. Mm -hmm. um, in, in your book, you touch on these issues as well, actually. And um, I'll, I'll read you a quote from the book, and then I'm going to ask you a quick question. Um, so you say on the central character is talking about uh, the morality of trap houses, which is where illegal drugs are sold, used, manufactured. Um, so this is the quote. Um, I told them it wasn't wrong, not in this world at least, where chicken shops meet the demands of the obese and corner shops supplied alcoholics with the means. This world where morality and legality were poles apart pretending some semblance of an acquaintanceship. It really neatly summarizes some of what Marianne talks about a little bit, kind of. And I just wondered, before we open out the conversation, in a nutshell, where do you stand on crime and policing in black neighborhoods? That's a massive question. It's, um, I know it's big. I have a negative relationship with the police, a relationship I was given first and foremost in my house, when my parents said, the police are not your friends, don't trust the police. Uh, if you have an issue, come home. If you have an issue, go to your auntie's house, go to your uncle's house, go to your grandparents' house, go to your friend's house. It was very much, and this is another reason why I was saying I wasn't interested in earthly crime, is because it wasn't, the justice system wasn't so much a thing. The only time the justice system was involved were when my friends or anyone strangers go to prison so it was just it wasn't like i think there's a perception of like in america the police says to serve and protect i don't know what the slogan is here but i'm sure there's some pr slogan but um there's not a relationship i've never had a relationship no one i've ever known has had a relationship with the police of help and of friendship and of protection if something goes wrong it's solved or it's tra attempted to solve internally um, so that's when my first relationship with the police is don't trust these people, have a carrier fear, a wise fear of these people in uniform and in ununiform especially. Um, and then everything in my environment, which is incredible, obviously, I don't know if it was Fletcher actually speaking about her who introduced area police, and I'm not sure who it was, but my area is very heavily, very, very heavily policed. And after the riots, in St. Paul's in 1980, or some people call it uprising. In 1980, they built a police station in 1981 across the road from St. Paul's in my area of Eastern as a direct response to say, okay, this is, we're like, we're watching you type thing. And then the area was very, very heavily policed after that. Um, so everything I learned inside the house was to fear and almost carry like a, a hatred for the police. And then everything outside the house attested this. 
So I saw my, like, my friends' heads getting smacked off police cars, doors thrown inside. People would come out the station and like, have a very negative experience of, of being in the station, of, of being around police. Two years, talking about George, the unfortunate person of George Floyd, the police killed uh, a Somali boy in Cardiff like, a few months afterwards, uh, called Mohammed Hassan. And that got completely covered. No one talks about it. No one was buried. Mm. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. Uh, they killed a black man in Newport, the holding cells as well, in the months after George Floyd. Mm. But then because I think what England has, is very, very good at, is and the media is very good at, is highlighting all the flaws of America and the race issues in America. And they kind of use it as a way of completely bypassing all the problems here. Mm. Because the same things happen here. To a lesser extent, I completely agree to a lesser extent. But that would be because of our gun laws. I imagine if our gun laws were the same as them, it would be to the exact, exact same extent. And even when I say it's to a lesser extent, the percentage of black people in jails and prison here, um, population-wise, is actually worse and higher than the United States. So I'm not actually sure it's how much worse it is. But especially when like, the younger you get, the more prevalent that is in terms of like, the youth institutions. Uh, so yeah, So I and then even another anecdote I can give about that kind of solidifies my perception of the police um, is when I was at my little cousin's funeral they arrested three people in the funeral and came into the funeral to arrest three different people and that kind of completely encapsulates what I believe the police to be and what my relationship with the police is just quite low mm. and, and slimy um, but yeah one thing I was actually going to ask you was whether you believed your, talking about change from the inside, and whether you believe your job that you carried out had that effect, and that kind of, I guess, leads on to what you're talking about in terms of the Black Police Association, and whether that can make a difference. I personally believe it doesn't, and it can't. I don't believe with it that change from the inside works. I've never ever seen an indication of that ever working in history, ever, not once. Can I just interject one yeah. second? I'm really aware that, time. I mean, we, you've brought up such incredible, incredibly interesting, engaging issues, and I really want, I'd really like the audience oh, to, sure, sure. to um, address some of those if they'd like to. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah um, okay. But like you, I'm really curious about um, Bill's yes, involvement with the Black Police Association, mm. so let's try not to uh, let that drop. Should we just see, first of all, if there's anybody in the audience that would like to uh, address any of the issues raised. The gentleman at the back with the beard. <laughs> Sorry, but Sorry? I, can't, I can't hear you. Sorry, um, considering you're speaking about the Black Police Association, it'd be good, um, it'd be good if you could speak about, do you feel that by engaging with the police, what changes do you feel you've seen by engaging with the police from the inside? And what oh, yeah, issues no, remain? What changes do you feel that you've seen from engaging with the police from the inside, what changes have, have happened there? Well, one thing we've had, it's um, <clears throat> more black officers actually stopping in than they used to. In my first seven years of policing, we never got above seven. Right? And after 13 years, we got to a grand total of 42, I believe it was. Massive difference. And the reason behind that is because I tried to encourage them not to sit on the fence 
and be quiet about things. If something's not right, I've been trying to encourage them at every level to actually come forward and say something. If they don't want to do it, come to somebody who has access to do it, present their information to the right audience. And that's happened, and it seems to have worked. Thank you, Bill. Anybody else? Um, it's just going back to the relationship between the police and the media. We just had the reports from Oldham and Rotherham about the grooming gangs. The police knew what was going on, media knew what was going on. Nobody wanted to know about it, but it was because it was uh, vulnerable and white children involved. What, what, what was it you said? I couldn't quite hear that. Yeah, could you just repeat your question, please? Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, sorry. Right, and just going back to the relationship between the media and the police. Just had reports about from Oldham and Rotherham about the grooming grags. Okay. The police knew what was going on. The media knew what was going on. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Was that because it involved vulnerable white children? Well, I think um, you know more about this than me. I, I don't actually know what you're referring to. But yeah. I think um, in regard to vulnerable white children, this is, race is very much an issue of class. And and, and it, I don't know which is more class is probably the more significant mm -hmm. issue, and the vulnerable white children will be ignored over and over again, I'm sure, because they're the least interesting. In regard to journalism, I think journalism is like I'm I'm not a fan of journalism at all because journalists can't write what they want want to write; mm. they write what sells, and their editors dictate what sells. And because of incidents like George Floyd and because black women, especially on social media, have such presence, um, there, there are certain things that, that, that sell, there are certain stories that sell and there are certain stories that don't. And I would say from my experience and what I can see, white children in the north of this country like, is probably the least interesting in regard to the journalists and what they perceive to be interesting and the least sellable story. Whereas because blackness is a trend now, and I'm saying that's wrong, but I'm saying because blackness is a trend now, and it, the trend would most definitely end, but while it's a trend, that's what's going to sell. Even, for example, my book, I think my book is very good, but it sold quickly in the aftermath of um, all this blackness in the media and all, this, every, all these countries rushing to do performative actions. That's when my book sold. And I'm very conscious of that. And I think 10, 15 years ago, I don't think my book would have sold, even if the quality was exactly the same. So and I don't think that speaks to what you're talking about. I don't know the particular, like, mm. the, like the incident that happened. But yeah. I mean, what you said was absolutely right. And that's one of the big criticisms of traditional crime journalism. The whole idea, and it's something researchers have gone on about since the 1970s, the idea of what is newsworthy. And there's this line, if it bleeds, it leads. And also there's this idea that in terms of who is an ideal victim, it's usually somebody who is white, is middle class. An example of that that a lot of police officers gave me at the time, journalists, was the um, story about Madeleine McCann and how it kept coming back and back into the news. And at the same time, a police officer told me about a story about a little kid who'd gone missing in Greater Manchester area, and she was the daughter of a traveller. 
and you have to get stories out in the first 24 hours and she was this police officer was trying to get local news trying to get national news to engage couldn't get anybody to do that because newspapers were saying that's not of interest to our demographic mm. but what I am really passionate about is, if it's okay to say, yeah. the new profit, the new non-profit journalism. And you were talking about um, the antipathy towards Roma communities. Mm -hmm. And part of my book, the bit that's really optimistic, is the work that I've done over the last three years about the emergence of non-profit journalism. And one of them is the Bristol Cable. And the people who started off the Bristol Cable were not journalists for a start. They were three students who'd been activists at university. And they weren't white, all of them. They weren't, all of them weren't middle class, but they were university educated. And they said, right, we're coming from a position of privilege. And what we want to do, if we're going to start up a news um, organisation, we want this to be really democratic. So they went out and they made time to talk to communities, including the Gypsy, Roma and Traveller community. And they said, instead of us as journalists telling you what the stories are we should be telling, we're going to ask you, what are the things that we should be talking about? And one of their reporters, Hannah Vickers, was a very inspiring young woman, and she spent a lot of time talking to these communities, to traveller communities, and saying, you know, I want to build relationships. I want you to get me to trust you, know, you to trust me, because you have not been represented properly. So, first of all, she gave them a chance to talk about, in their stories, negative representations. Why did they think they were being represented negatively? What would they like the general public to know about? And then, secondly, she and the rest of the Bristol Cable made sure that there were stories being told from the traveller point of view. So, it was lack of sights, health and education inequalities, stories that would not make the mainstream media. And finally, they did something which I thought was absolutely brilliant, which was, if we're going to feature other people's voices, then they should be telling the stories. We should be training them to tell the stories themselves. So they ran a load of workshops, which is training ordinary citizens in the ethics of journalism, photojournalism, how to do interviews. So they've been trying to move towards a more inclusive and democratic form of reporting. And I think also it's a hugely positive movement because there are a hell of a lot of problems, as we've been saying, with traditional crime journalism, with the whole business of we just talk about crime as you know, violation of the law. We don't talk about social harm. We don't talk about the representation, the negative representation of certain communities and how they are always to blame. They're always the scapegoats. And these non-profits are actually changing from the inside not because they're just sh writing these stories, but they're sharing them with big organisations. And it's only happening in this country. Um, in the States, there's this still this sh news sharing, but they're having to write their stories to fit the um, big state outlets' normative news values. Here, they're not doing that. They're transforming from the inside. So you're getting the Bristol Cable, you're getting the Bureau for Investigative Journalism and their sister project. They're selling stories to The Guardian, The Mail, The Sun. So it's a really exciting and positive development in terms of media. And I'm really, really passionate about the work they do. Thank you, Marianne. Have we got a oh, final question, I think? Back row. We've got 
about five minutes. Marianne, I think you're being a bit unkind about journalists. I did train as a journalist, but you've got a whole range of local media up here, like the Yorkshire Post. It has um, two or three Muslim journalists working for it that cover well the, 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 the and Telegraph and Argus and the Keithley News. They do report. Um, they do report as they find. Um, I, I agree, maybe with with the national media that might might be somewhat different in terms of who owns them. But I wanted to ask you a question about in your book. Did you? Mm. I'm I'm intrigued because we, we had a a, a a graduate who worked for South Yorkshire Police, who worked as a press officer, who was asked to redact a lot of stuff that happened about the Hillsborough inquiry, which he was very upset about. Um, do you think there has been a change in terms of the way the police interface with the public in terms of how things are reported, um, how their press officers work with the media, or do you think it hasn't changed? Right, so there's a lot of questions in there, well, actually. We've got like about three minutes. Okay, let's talk about police and press officers. And I can talk about you afterwards about where you say I've been unkind to journalists. So the focus of my book deliberately has been on the Met and on um, relations with the national news media. And I would absolutely take on board that there are very different relations between regional and local press and press officers. And from speaking to Duncan Campbell, for example, he's been saying it's really different. The big chill is still on between the Met and the press officers. So it's really, basically, has it, has it changed? The Met, I would say, is more secretive than ever before, and it's less accountable than ever before. And given the wave of scandals that's engulfed the Met over the last two years, that is a big concern for all of us. And why is it less accountable than ever before? Well, firstly, Leveson cl clamped down on contact between the police and the press. It's so bad that Fiona Campbell, journalist, crime editor for The Times, talked about how she'd been to cover, quite recently, a case at the Old Bailey. And she saw a senior officer she'd been on previously good terms with for everything. He hid behind, this sounds ridiculous, he hid behind a pillar rather than talk to her because relations are so bad, you cannot afford to be seen as a Met officer talking to a journalist. The other problem has been social media, as I said earlier, Basically, you've got the police realising, press officers, that they can communicate with the public more effectively than ever before. But also, there's been a big change. I talked to press officers who were in post at the Met, at the Press Bureau, in the 80s and 90s, and they were very much about how, if we're the Met, we've got to set up a, a, a perception of transparency and accountability. And they had a real big thing about saying, okay, when we have made mistakes, we are going, going to own up to them. We're going to talk about bad news. You know, and also the other thing they used to do was to bring journalists out with them on sensitive investigations to make sure that journalists could see for themselves exactly how they were being policed. That's all stopped. And so at a time when the police, or the Met, I should say, and I should make that very strong distinction, are engulfed by these scandals. They're less accountable than ever before. And so in terms of you know, journalists being able to fulfill their fourth estate role, they can't. And while I'm saying very evangelically about the rise of the non-profits and how fantastic it is, the problem is that the non-profits are not touching, by and large, 
the police. So nobody is actually reporting. Lots of crimes are being unreported because they're being reported on Twitter, but nobody's getting the information. When journalists do get to go to briefings, they feel they're being given an, a sort of overly rosy view of the Met's successes, but they don't have those unofficial contacts, so they can't actually say for sure. And, you know, where lots of stories of police corruption used to come from within, okay, we've had some over the last few years, but it begs the question, how many more are going unreported? So the balance of power is very much with the Met at the moment. Can we... I'm, I'm just very aware that... Yeah. This is, this is for Bill and Moses. I mean, like Moses, I don't have a very good relationship with the police, but I wonder whether if I'd had in my um, in, involvements with the police, with the, if, if Bill had been involved, I might have had a better um, feeling about the police. And I, and, and I suppose the question for both Bill and Moses is, uh, is that a possibility? Is it a possibility that, that someone could affect change if there were the right kind of black policemen? Because there are lots of black policemen who weren't necessarily affect change. Yeah. <laughs> I would say yes and also no, <laughs> right? Because I've got a younger brother who's got a totally different attitude to me, right? 20 years later, he's a changed man because he's seen different things. His experience has been different again. And the people he's sort of hung around with, they've grown up and they've made their decisions, which is not his decision. The thing about your colour, your colour is fine because you know what you are, but it doesn't define you for life. Some people acquiesce because it's an easier option. I've had it within my own force where people have just said, it's not to do with me, I'm not black. Mm. Right? And they will say that openly and then privately they'll tell a different story. When I worked in the communities, which, if you think about the community I worked in, I was a very, very small minority of the population there. And I'm going to have to try and give you a bit of a quote, exactly. An elderly lady, when I was leaving, what she said to me was, we've been in a situation in this mining area for many, many times, and everybody's falling out with miners' strike, etc. But you being here has made a massive difference to how they look at things. Because their perception was a lot to do with television, was a lot to do with other people chit-chat, but now they've actually seen somebody and they know somebody who's a bit different to them. Mm. And I think that's important. So it's not, it's not so much to be about colour, it's about your own perception and whether you're going to open your mind up to things that you can see, and actually, it, oh, I think of a pleasant term to put it, think of a way of looking at somebody and says, their experience might be different from yours, but it doesn't mean they can't change. I would say Thank no. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, so I would say no. Um, I think only certain type of people become police officers. Um, in the same way, only certain type of people become teachers and nurses and doctors in any profession. Um, and I think that change cannot be made from the inside. I think any solution that we need as black people is internal, globally and locally. 
Thank you, Moses. I can tell that we could carry on talking for another 30 minutes, but we won't because we have to be considerate of our colleagues here at Bradford Literature Festival. What I would suggest, though, before we go, is that for those of you whose appetite hasn't quite been sated, read Marianne's book. It's called, to get it absolutely correct, it's called Crime and Investigative Reporting in the UK. Read Moses's book and watch uh, the documentary about Bill and you'll get three really interesting, contrasting uh, perspectives on what is a, an incredibly complex and interesting issue. But I'd like to thank the panel and um, thank you as an audience as well. Mm -hmm.